prayer should be that the Lord would be encouraging all of us together and pray. Um, so I, I think I touched on this list last time, but I want to talk a little bit more extensively about it. This is from uh, Dennis Gunderson's book on, on corporate prayer. And to um, it's just themes, themes that we can be praying. And these are themes that we can all be thinking about to get us beyond, you know, oftentimes you gather together and you're like, well, we're going to pray for Aunt Susie's ingrown toenail or something. And you, and you get to just on all these little things, but there's so much more we can be praying for um, regarding the, the body of Christ in general. And so first, our missionaries, there was a poll taken of 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 the church and, and asked, um, what is the most common thing that people pray for when they pray for missionaries? And the, the number one prayer for missionaries was that they would be protected from wild animals. Well, well that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, let's pray that they're, for their protection. And there was this, uh, this family of missionaries, and they were, they were going over these statistics. And one of the children was there, and when he heard that, he goes, that's why we never see lions and gorillas. But really, we need to be praying that God would bless the gospel as they, because that's where they're there. They understand the risk, right? Going into the jungle or, you know, anywhere. They understand the risk that, that they're exposed to. But ultimately, they want to be sharing the gospel and spreading the, uh, the good news of Christ. Um, pray for our government authorities. Um, maybe this is where imprecatory prayers. No, just kidding. <laughs> but we do need to be praying not only for our president, you know, all of our government. I, I honestly, when you look at what is going on in our government, we should be praying that God would thwart evil plans, and that God would raise up godly men to to lead this nation. But be praying for even our local authorities. You know, our our mayors and city councils, um, the governor and state representatives. We we can make a list. We can look all all these people and be praying for the all these people. Um, pray for the persecuted church. I was I was thinking about. I love the story in Acts twelve. Of Peter, um, what well, y'all know when when Peter is in jail and um, the disciples are together praying for him and the Lord opens the door and he he's able to get out of jail and he goes straight to where they are. And he knocks on the door, and Rhoda, the servant girl, goes and and it's like, hey, it's, it's me, Peter, the one you are praying for. And she's so excited, she forgets to open the door, and she's like, hey, guys, Peter's here. And they're like, be quiet, we're praying for Peter right now. And <clears throat> but pray for the persecuted church; they were being persecuted. Persecution had 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 just started here. We need to be praying that we may see God deliver um, the church. Is I've heard it said today is more persecuted today than at any time in history. Throughout Muslim countries and all over the world, the church in communist countries is being persecuted. We need to be praying for those um, that God would give them boldness and give them strength and allow their, their persecutors to come to know Jesus. You see that in history. Richard Wormbrandt, you know, started Voice of the Martyrs. There is a story of him in prison and he was singing a particular hymn and later, he finds out one of the prison guards heard him singing that hymn. And uh, what, what hymn was it, Gabriel? Oh, Sacred Head Now Wounded. And, and he later finds out that man became a Christian. One of his guards, one of his, his, the men who beat him and tortured him, 
became a, became a Christian because he heard him singing, even under torture, that great hymn. Um, pray for our lost neighbors around us. I love the little hornbuckle girl wanting to pray for her neighbors. It's so wonderful. We need to be praying for them. But we need to get to know our neighbors in order to, to pray for them, whether they're saved or not. Pray for revival. I think the last two or three years, this is a prayer of mine every day. God, please grant repentance that there may be a that there would be a great moving of the Holy Spirit and people would turn back to the Lord. We need to be praying for revival. Pray for one another. Um, uh, Dennis Gunderson, in his book, he, he, one of his warnings about prayer meetings, I mean, pray for one another is obvious, is that prayer meetings don't become a gossip session. You know, it's easy. Well, we need to be praying for so-and-so because you heard what they did. You know, we don't, we don't want to do that. We want to be praying for the true needs of one another. And I, I'll give a, a particular example specific to my family. Six years ago, and I've told some of y'all this story, but a little over six years ago, our, our youngest daughter was born. And um, the baby was transverse. So we had to go to the hospital, and they were going to do a version where they, they smushed the baby and tried to get the baby to go down properly. And um, so Ruth had never had any issues having babies. The first six children, all born fine, no problems. So they were there, and they think they get the baby head down. And so they start the labor process, and we're all excited. And the heart monitor suddenly doesn't want to pick up the heart. So I get the nurse and said, you know, you need to check on this. So I check, and then they bring the ultrasound. Well, baby flipped back. Well, at that point, they were too far down the road. They couldn't do that again. They said, we got to do emergency C-section. So then everything changes. They take her to the operating room. She, um, I was supposed to get to go in there, so I had all the scrubs and everything on. Well, the epidural didn't work, and so they decided to completely put her under. And at that point, they said, sorry, you can't even go in. So I'm standing outside the operating room, nurses and doctors running in and out, just not knowing what's going on. And finally, I hear a little baby cry. And first baby I wasn't there for, and... When I heard the baby cry, I just started bawling myself. <laughs> My little baby's back there, and you're just not knowing what's going on. Well, it turned out she had a fibroid um, baseball size that was blocking the baby. Could, she could never have been born um, naturally. And in fact, they had to put a T into her. To get the baby out, they had to cut this big fibroid out. It's a pretty extensive C-section. I remember her waking up from anesthesia, and I've got the baby, and I'm like, here's your baby. And she's like, oh, baby. And she falls back asleep. But um, So that started what was the most difficult thing our family's ever experienced. Not only did she have this extensive C-section, a few days later, she began to get sick, and very sick. And um, finally, the doctors came in and said, your wife has... Clostridium difficile colitis, C. diff, if anybody heard of that. It kills several thousand people a year. They handed me some paperwork to read on it, and what is this? I've never heard of it. And then they said, you have to take the baby home. Baby can't stay here. Um, could be contagious. We can't put her in the nursery. So I, about, I think it was day five, I had to take the baby home. And um, then started a whirlwind of activity that I don't even know how we would have survived without the body of Christ. I would take care of the baby at night. Someone would show up at my house in the morning. I don't even know how this was all happening. I would go to the hospital 
and be with Ruth. But at day nine, they sent Ruth home, even though she was very sick. It was towards the weekend. I went back to work Monday. I get home from work, and her legs were so swollen, a really bad edema, and they were weeping fluid. And her heart rate had one of those watches to monitor her heart rate. It was racing. And I called the doctor. I'm like, something's not right. We, we need to get back. And so as they say, we'll go to the emergency room. So we go to the emergency room. And they finally get her back. And I've taken the baby with us. Um, I called somebody. Hey, please come watch our children. We're leaving right now. But I took the baby. They check her blood pressure. It was like 70 over 35, something really low. I remember the nurse kind of looking at me like, this is not good. And... So they started checking her for blood clots. Um, and in another day, she was in ICU. And I remember just going back and forth, just praying, Lord, I, I don't know what's happening here. They, they finally took, um, they examined her colon because what happens with C. diff, it causes your colon to become inflamed to the point that it can rupture. Well, they, it was one of these where the doctor comes out and he says, Please sit down, Mr. Adams. <laughs> you know that's not good when the doctor tells you to sit down. And he says, your wife is like an HIV patient. He said her immune system cannot keep up with everything that's going on. All these little things. They found a spot on her liver. Um, she had mouth thrush. They were giving her all, all these different things were going on. And, and he showed me, I can't, I'm not going to describe what her colon looked like. It was terrible. But um, he says, here's what we're going to do. They're going to put a pick line in her, it's the IV that goes basically to your heart, I guess, and start feeding her intravenous nutrition. Um, they were going to give her uh, fidaxomycin, which was this brand new antibiotic that they just designed specifically for C. diff. And they were going to give her an anti-inflammatory they use for Crohn's. And he says, here's what's going to happen. Either we will see her begin to improve over the next couple of days. We won't see her improve, and I'm going to take her colon out just came to have a baby, you know, <laughs> or her colon could rupture at any point and she probably won't make it. And I'm like, we just came to have a baby, you know, and I remember him telling me this and going back to the, her room. And when she shows up, she's, we're both just in tears. She doesn't know what's going on. She's like, do I have cancer? I don't, you know, what's going on? And so I went home that night eventually. And, uh, a good friend of mine named Chris Keyes. Um, there was there's a conference we go to called Forge Family is Obediently Restoring God the Education. Every year in Kerrville in September, early September, we go to this conference, and um, we weren't there that that year because Ruth was in the hospital, obviously. But this good friend of mine, he calls me from the conference. He's like, "How's how's it going?" And I'm explaining everything. He says, "I want you to know this entire conference, we stopped and prayed for you, you know." I don't know how many people there, but a bunch of people prayed for my wife. And so I get off the phone, and I, I walk downstairs, and Gabriel, her oldest son, I think he was 12 years old or so, and Gabriel looks at me and says, Daddy, is Mama going to be okay? And I said, Gabriel, I just got off the phone with Mr. Keys, and that entire conference is praying for Mama. I know people in Colorado, up in Connecticut, in Mexico, all over the place are praying for mama, and I believe God's going to answer those prayers. And God answered those prayers. And she's here. I still have a beautiful baby girl, and she's doing well. But <clears throat> that was the most difficult 
period of time I've ever experienced. We spent almost a month in the hospital, and it was scary, but it was just so awesome to see the body of Christ praying and coming around us. I think we still have salad dressing from all the salads that were brought to us six years ago. Maybe we've used it all up by now. But pray for one another and pray hard and pray together for one another. So pray for sending of gospel workers, not just the missionaries, but God would continue to send people out to, to shed, share the gospel. Pray for the nations. Wow, Ukraine, Russia, all these areas, so many places around the world we need to be praying for. Pray for married couples and pray for singles. Specifically praying, we used to have our singles time that we were praying, but be praying for, for our marriages too. Satan hates godly marriages and he wants to destroy them. We need to be praying for our married couples. Um, pray for other churches in our cities. We need to be praying for those other churches, not just Southern Baptists, but praying for all, the, all denominations and praying that God would use them. God uses people that don't think exactly like we do. You know it. It's amazing, but he does. Um, pray for our lost children. Pray for boldness in our witness. Pray that we would not be ashamed, but we would have a zeal for sharing the gospel. Pray for wisdom. We need so much wisdom today. Um, pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit. Pray for the elders of our church. We need to be praying. Churches, I mean, churches are under attack and they want to destroy elders. Be praying that God would give strength to our elders that they could stand firm. Pray what Jesus prayed in the high priestly prayer in John 17, that he would keep his people, that he would sanctify them, that he would that they that we would live in unity, that we would be one. Um, you know, the church is so split so often, but pray that we would be one over the essentials. Um, and pray for our enemies. That's hard to do as well, but pray for our enemies. Pray for those who persecute the church, as Christ said. So, let's see. A few examples I wanted to share and um, these are just amazing stories. Maybe some of them y'all have heard, but uh, I'll just read this one here. It says, in the year 1854, a sailing vessel was becalmed in the vicinity of New Guinea. Seeing the distressed look on the captain's face as he peered intently into the sea, a young Englishman inquired as to the cause of his anxiety. This was the reply. A four-knot current is carrying us swiftly towards some sunken reefs over there. Our fate seems to be sealed. On the shores of the island, cannibals were rushing about and lighting fires in great glee. Presently, the captain spoke again. We have done everything that can be done. No, responded the young man. There is one thing we haven't done. Four of us on board are Christians. Let us each retire to his cabin and agree, and in agreed prayer, ask the Lord to give us a breeze immediately. This was agreed upon and done. After a few minutes of earnest intercession, the young man came up, came up on deck, confident that the petition had been granted. Finding the first officer, a godless man in charge, he requested him to let down the corners of the mainsail. What would, what would be the good of that, he asked. The young man told him, 
that he and three others had been asking God to send a wind, that it was coming immediately, and that there was not a minute to, to lose since they were so near the reefs. With a look of contempt, the officer replied with an oath, nonsense, you can't pray up a wind. Noticing a few moments later that the topmost sail was beginning to tremble, he said, that is only a cat's paw, a mere puff of wind. Never mind what you think. Uh, never mind what you think, cried the young man. Let down the mainsail quickly. This he was not slow to do. Hearing the heavy tread of the men on deck, the captain came up from his cabin and saw that the breeze had indeed come. In a few minutes, they were sailing away from the dangerous reefs, much to the disappointment of the native cannibals on the beach. Writing of this and similar experiences, the young man said, Thus God encouraged me ere landing on China's shores to bring every variety of need to him in prayer and to expect that he would honor the name of the Lord Jesus and give the help which each emergency required. And that was Hudson Taylor wrote of that. There are so many incredible stories when you, when you look at great revivals that have happened throughout history. Um, just read a bit of this. The place of prayer in the Second Great Awakening. There was a Scottish Presbyterian minister in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Edinburgh named John Irkshire, who published a memorial. He called it Pleading with the People of Scotland and, and Elsewhere to Unite in Prayer for the Revival of Religion. He sent a copy of this little book to Jonathan Edwards in New England. That great theologian was so moved, he wrote a response which grew longer than a letter so that finally he published it as a book entitled, get this title, A Humble Attempt to Promote Explicit Agreement and the Visible Union of All God's People in Extraordinary Prayer for the Revival of Religion and the Advancement of Christ's Kingdom on Earth, Pursuant to scriptures, Scripture Promises and Prophecies Concerning the Last Time. That was the title of the book, not the whole book. If you've ever read Jonathan Edwards, you will understand. Um, brilliant, brilliant man, not always the easiest to understand. And but it goes on to say, it says, do not miss its message, a humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer for a revival of religion and extension of Christ's kingdom. It is not, is this, is not this what is missing so much from all our evangelistic efforts, explicit agreement, the visible union, special prayer. This movement had started in Britain through William Carey, Andrew Fuller, John Sutcliffe, and other leaders who began what the British called the Union of Prayer. Hence, the year after John Wesley died, the Second Great Awakening began and swept Great Britain. In New England, there was a man of prayer named Isaac Bacchus, a Baptist pastor, who in 1794, when conditions were at their worst, addressed an urgent plea for prayer for revival to pastors of every Christian denomination in the United States. Churches knew that their backs were to the wall, so the Presbyterians of New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania adopted it for all their churches. Bishop Francis Asbury took it for all the Methodists, the Congregational and Baptist Associations, the Reformed and the Moravians all adopted the plea until America, like Britain, 
was interlaced with a network of prayer meetings which set aside the first Monday of every month to pray. It was not long before the revival reached the frontier in Kentucky. It encountered a people really wild and irreligious. Congress had discovered that in Kentucky, there had not been more than one court of justice held in five years. Peter Cartwright, a Methodist, any Kentuckians in here? <laughs> Peter Cartwright, a Methodist evangelist, wrote that when his father settled in Logan County, it was known as Rogue's Harbor. If someone committed a murder in Massachusetts or robbery in Rhode Island, all they needed to do was head west. The decent people of Kentucky formed regiments of vigilantes to fight for law and order, um, fought and pitched battle with outlaws and lost. Then there was a Scotch-Irish Presbyterian minister named James McGreedy, whose chief claim to fame was that he was so ugly that he attracted attention. It was reported that people sometimes stopped in the street to ask, what does he do? He's a preacher. They, then they reacted saying, a man with a face like that must really have something to say. McGreedy settled in Logan County, pastor of three little churches. He wrote in his diary that the winter of 1799, for the most part, was weeping and mourning with the people of God. Lawlessness prevailed everywhere. McGreedy was such a man of prayer that not only did he promote the concert of prayer every first Monday of the month, but he got his people to pray for him at sunset on Saturday evening and sunrise on Sunday morning. Then in the summer of 1800 came the Great Kentucky Revival. 11,000 people came to a communion service. McGreedy hollered for help regardless of denomination. Baptists and Methodists came in response, and the great camp meeting revival started to sweep Kentucky and Tennessee, then spread over North and South Carolina along with the frontier. And it says, out of, out of that second great awakening after the death of John Wesley came the whole modern missionary movement and its societies and the abolition of slavery and popular education, Bible societies, Sunday schools, and many social benefits accompanying the evangelical drive. There's others. Um, the 1859, maybe y'all some of some of y'all heard of uh, Jeremiah Lanfear, who put a an ad in the paper in New York about starting a prayer meeting, and six people show up, and then twelve people show up, and it began spreading. And this eventually, huge prayer meetings were meeting all over New York in the mid 1800s. Um, you know, I, I could go on and on. The Great Welch Revival, the Great Indian Revival, the, the Hebrides Revival in 1949. Many, many revivals taking place throughout our nation and other nations. Uh, one more story I wanted to tell that um, was a great encouragement to me. There was a man, uh, a Scottish man, early 1800s, by the name of James Patton. And James Patton, he never amounted to much more than a stocking maker. That was his lifelong profession uh, in Scotland. And, but he was a great man of prayer. And he would spend hours from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. at night at the loom making stockings and praying. And it was actually, uh, as a young man, he, he would go out under a tree and pray 
And there was a young woman who once, who noticed how he often goes and prays and he would hang his hat on the limb as he prayed. And one day this young lady came and while he was praying, his eyes closed, she, she moved his hat to pray a joke on him. And she went away and she felt so convicted by the Holy Spirit that she had done this to this great man of prayer. The next day she wrote a note and she laid it and she says, it was I who moved your hat. Please pray for me that I would be such a, a person of God as you are. And this lady became his wife eventually. They had 11 children, five sons, and six daughters. They lived. Uh, James uh, Patton never went beyond 10 miles of his home. They lived in the same little house, tiny little house, and his children wrote of what a man of prayer he, would, he was. He would often go into his closet and pray, and they said he would come out with his countenance shining. They would hear just grievous, just uh, such great groans crying out to the Lord in that closet, but he would come out with his countenance shining because he had spent time with his Savior. Well, the oldest of his children, a young man, decided to go off, um, and his father walked with him six miles as he headed to where he was going, and they said they talked his father encouraged him and exhorted him um, all along the way. But he said the last mile, his father, with his hat in his hand, just prayed for him, prayed and prayed, his lips quivering. And finally, when he got near his destination, they hugged and embraced and wept. And the son, um, as he walked on and as he turned the corner, he looked back and he still saw his father standing there, hat in hand, praying for his son. And he said he turned the corner and he knelt down there and he just prayed, Lord, let me have a faith like my father. And this young man is known as John G. Patton, who went off to be one of the greatest missionaries, if you've ever read his biography, one of the greatest missionaries in the South Seas. Amazing stories of the cannibals coming to kill him, to he tells of a, of a story where the cannibals were coming to burn the mission down. And the cannibals actually told the story that they stopped because they saw angels with flaming swords. And they, so they did not burn the mission down, but many amazing stories. And on this particular island, eventually every person on this island turned from savages, witch doctors, to taking communion, taking the Lord's Supper and professing the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And no doubt, John James Patton was praying for his son in many of those times when his son was faced with great, great uh, evil. And um, I love that story. James, John Patton never saw his father alive again. As an old man, he finally went back. And it says he, he came back to the grave where his father was buried and just praised God for using such a man of prayer. But you know, any of us can be men and women of prayer. We can all be praying for our children. We can all be crying out to the Lord and praying for that revival. And I believe God will answer those prayers. Um, it quit working. <laughs> can you forward it for me? There. So I want to uh, just... Um, actually, 
before I get to this, I wanted to give a few uh, biblical examples. Um, here we are. So I love the story of Sennacherib and Hezekiah. And y'all, y'all know this story when um, Sennacherib sent his, his minions to um, mock and condemn the people of God. And we're telling him, look, no other gods have, have, uh, have prevented Sennacherib from taking over all these nations. And for the sake of time, I won't read all this. But what, what I love about this story, this event in Scripture is what Hezekiah does. First, Isaiah, maybe I'll show, I will read this. Isaiah, um, the prophet, which, okay, so Scripture had not been, canon was not done yet, but we had Isaiah, the prophet, who was bringing the word of God. So what does Isaiah do? He goes to the word of God, which is what we must do. It says, Isaiah said unto them, thus shall ye say to your master, thus saith the Lord, do not be afraid of the words which thou hast heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon them, upon him, and he shall hear a rumor and shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. So Hezekiah, he takes this letter, he takes it up to the temple, lays it out, and I love what he says here. It says, Hezekiah received the letter by the hand of the messengers and read it, and Hezekiah went up, into the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord God of Israel, which dwellest between the cherubims, thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Thou hast made heaven and earth. Lord, bow down thine ear and hear. Open, Lord, thine eyes and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which hath sent him to reproach the living God. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have destroyed the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they have destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord, our God, I beseech thee, save thou us out of his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that thou art the Lord God, even thou only. Why do we pray? Why do we pray that God would deliver us? You know, it's not even for our own, for ourselves. Not only, not just for our own peace, but ultimately that God would be exalted. I did mess up here. I skipped this and I shouldn't have. I wanted to encourage you to not lose heart. As this verse says in Luke 18, and he spake a parable unto them, to this end, that men ought always to pray and not faint, to not, not grow weary in doing good, as the scripture says, to not lose heart, to not be discouraged, and the opposite, to be encouraged, to be hopeful, to pray. And I shared some of this uh, actually on our Alert Cadet canoe trip. Um, so those of you who are there, just bear with me. Well, by the way, Alert meets here every Monday and when every, sorry, Tuesday, second, first, and third Tuesday, get it right, I should know, <laughs> every first and third Tuesday, um, the young men meet up here for our Alert Cadet meeting, and the, the girls have bright lights, so you have no excuse, you can give your wife a break, fathers, and bring all your children up here, we have a lot of fun, but I shared some of this on our Alert Cadet canoe trip on the side of the river, which was a wonderful time, 
um, but to encourage one another to not lose heart. Romans 8.28, we all know this verse, right? We know that all things work together for good for them that love God to them who are called according to his purpose. Do we really believe this verse? I mean, we, we all practically do, I'm sure. But sometimes do we question it? Like, how is this working out for good, right? I mean, I don't understand this. I went, and that's why I shared the, the Sennacherib and Hezekiah story. Because what happens? Eventually, in the night, this happens. Starting in verse 35, it says, And it came to pass that night that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. And when they had arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned to dwell at Nineveh. And it came to pass, as he was worshiping in the house of Nishrach, his god, that Adremelech and Sherezer, his son, smote him with the sword. So what, what happened? Hezekiah had no idea. He did not know what the Lord was doing. But he prayed, he sought God's word, and he prayed. And the angel of the Lord took care of this. I love the, uh, the story of Elisha and his servant. When his servant says, what's happening? And Elisha says, you don't see what I see. And then he opened his eyes, and he saw these legions of angels up there. We don't know how God is working things together for good, but he is. And I loved what uh, Brother Aaron's um, father shared from Isaiah 57, the verse that says, for thus, sa for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity. God inhabits eternity. He sees it from the beginning to the end. We only see that finite thing. So we don't know exactly how God is working all these things together for good, but he does. He knows exactly what's going on. Romans 5, 3 through 5. Um, when I was uh, in college, and I thought life was difficult, you know, you think life is difficult when you're young, and then you get older, and you find out life isn't really as difficult as it was. But anyway, so I was going through a tough time, and my Sunday school teacher shared this verse, and it was the first time I remember saying, I want to know this verse, and I memorized it, and it was really because of the first half. What does it say? It says, and not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience our character, it could be, and, and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which was given to us. And so I memorized that verse because I was thinking, you know what? I don't have to be sad about these trials I'm going through. I can be grateful in these tribulations because we know that God is, he's building character in me. He's building patience in me. But I didn't think about the second half of the verse, this verse about hope. Until later, I was reading, I was studying this, and I began to realize this is not hope like, I hope the Astros win the World Series. You know, I hope it doesn't rain on our, our camp out. You know, this is not wishful thinking. This is confidence in that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. And we can have this confidence because the Holy Spirit has been poured in our hearts. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. through his love, and one day we will have every tear wiped away. There will be no more sorrow or pain. 
And so what do these trials, these pains, these tough times, they point us to that hope, that blessed hope that we have when all these trials and tribulations are gone, ultimately, they show us Christ Jesus, what he has done for us. He has saved us by dying on the cross so that one day it will all be wiped away. But without Jesus, we think we have trials now. No, it will be much worse, much worse. So we have hope and we should not lose heart. The interesting thing in this first verse that I shared up here in Luke 18, it says, and he spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and to not faint or to not lose heart. That verse comes immediately after um, the, the passage, when Jesus is talking about the, the coming of Christ, the rapture, he's, and he says, you know, there'll be two men walking up a hill and one disappears and one's left. So he's talking about these end times when the Lord returns and takes us home and, and things are, are all made new, but it's right before the parable of the, uh, the persistent widow, which is encourages you to keep going to Christ. Do not lose heart. Keep seeking him. Stay on your knees. I love the story of Susanna Spurgeon. Susanna Wesley, I'm sorry. Susanna Wesley. She had 17 children in like a one-room little house. You know, all you homeschool moms with all your children, <laughs> you're not, you don't have 17 in a one-room house. And so what she would do, and her children knew this, she would take her apron and pull it over her head. And her children knew when she has that apron pulled over her head, she is in deep prayer and we are not to mess with mama. We are to not lose heart. We are to continue to seek him. Um, one last, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Love the story. We all love the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It says, and after they were thrown in the, in the fiery furnace, or before they were thrown in the fiery furnace, they say, what well, says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, not worship the golden image that thou hast set up. Is that where we are? Can we say, I'm not, I'm not going to bow to the temptations of the world, no matter what. And I believe God is going to be faithful and answer those prayers. But even if he doesn't, I have a, a limited understanding of what is going on in the world. And I know even if it doesn't look like it, God is ultimately working these things together for good. And I'm not going, I'm not going to turn. I'm not going to follow the world. I'm going to continue to seek Christ in Christ alone, my God and Savior who died for my sins. Amen? Romans 15, 13, Now the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. And I just will end this to just to ask you to remember to bring all your needs, worries, desires, and hopes and concerns to the throne of grace. What is your greatest concern for your children? Bring it to the throne of grace. What is your greatest need in your marriage? Bring that to the throne of grace. 
What is your biggest struggle with your homeschooling? Bring it to the throne of grace. What's your toughest part of your job? Bring it to the throne of grace. Who do you know that needs salvation? Bring them to the throne of grace. Let's go to the throne of grace. And let's pray now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, God, for your word and this encouragement to be seeking you daily. God, give us hearts that daily bow before you, petitioning you, Lord, for all these things, Lord. You have said to seek you first, and all these things will be added unto you. Lord, we have so many needs. We are a needy people, and that is why we come before you. Lord, may you be exalted even when we don't understand it. May you be glorified. May your name be praised this day and forevermore. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we ask this in Christ's name for your glory. Amen.